The Safety Match by Anton Chekhov This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gesine The Safety Match by Anton Chekhov Part 1 On the morning of October 6, 1885, in the office of Inspector of Police of the 2nd Division of S. District, there appeared a respectably dressed young man who announced that his master, Marcus Ivanovich Klausov, a retired officer of the Horse Guards, separated from his wife, had been murdered. While making this announcement, the young man was white and terribly agitated. His hands trembled and his eyes were full of terror. "'Whom have I the honour of addressing?' asked the inspector. "'Psykov, Lieutenant Klausov's agent, agriculturist and mechanician.' The inspector and his deputy, on visiting the scene of the occurrence in company with Psykov, found the following. Near the wing in which Klausov had lived was gathered a dense crowd. The news of the murder had sped swift as lightning through the neighbourhood, and the peasantry, thanks to the fact that the day was a holiday, had hurried together from all the neighbouring villages. There was much commotion and talk. Here and there pale, tear-stained faces were seen. The door of Klausov's bedroom was found locked. The key was inside. "'It is quite clear that the scoundrels got in by the window,' said Psykov, as they examined the door." They went to the garden, into which the bedroom window opened. The window looked dark and ominous. It was covered by a faded green curtain. One corner of the curtain was slightly turned up, which made it possible to look into the bedroom. "'Did any of you look into the window?' asked the inspector. "'Certainly not, your worship,' answered Ephraim, the gardener, a little grey-haired old man who looked like a retired sergeant. "'Who's going to look in, if all their bones are shaking?' "'Ah, Marcus Ivanovitch, Marcus Ivanovitch,' sighed the inspector, looking at the window. "'I told you you would come to a bad end. "'I told the dear man, but he wouldn't listen. "'Dissipation doesn't bring any good.' "'Thanks to Ephraim,' said Psykov. "'But for him we would never have guessed. "'He was the first to guess that something was wrong.' He comes to me this morning and says, Why is the master so long getting up? He hasn't left his bedroom for a whole week. The moment he said that, it was just as if someone had hit me with an axe. The thought flashed through my mind. We haven't had a sight of him since last Saturday, and today is Sunday. Seven whole days, not a doubt of it. Aye, poor fellow, again sighed the inspector. He was a clever fellow, finely educated and kind-hearted at that, and in society nobody could touch him. But he was a waster, God rest his soul. I was prepared for anything since he refused to live with Olga Petrovna. Poor thing, a good wife, but a sharp tongue. Stephen, the inspector called to one of his deputies, go over to my house this minute and send Andrew to the captain to lodge an information with him. Tell him that Marcus Ivanovitch has been murdered. And run over to the orderly. Why should he sit there, kicking his heels? Let him come here. 
and go as fast as you can to the examining magistrate, Nicholas Yamulayevich. Tell him to come over here. Wait, I'll write him a note. The inspector posted sentinels around the wing, wrote a letter to the examining magistrate, and then went over to the director's for a glass of tea. Ten minutes later he was sitting on a stool, carefully nibbling a lump of sugar, and swallowing the scalding tea. "'There you are,' he was saying to Psykov. "'There you are, a noble by birth, a rich man, a favourite of the gods, you may say, as Pushkin has it. And what did he come to? He drank and dissipated, and there you are, he's murdered.' After a couple of hours the examining magistrate drove up. Nicholas Yemolayevich Chubikov, for that was the magistrate's name, was a tall, fleshy old man of sixty, who had been wrestling with the duties of his office for a quarter of a century. Everyone in the district knew him as an honest man, wise, energetic, and in love with his work. He was accompanied to the scene of the murder by his inveterate companion, fellow worker and secretary, Dukovsky, a tall young fellow of twenty-six. "'Is it possible, gentlemen?' cried Chubikov, entering Psykov's room and quickly shaking hands with everyone. "'Is it possible? Markos Ivanovitch murdered? No, it is impossible. Impossible!' "'Go in there,' sighed the inspector. "'Lord have mercy on us. Only last Friday I saw him at the fair in Farabankov.' I had a drink of vodka with him, save the mark. Go in there, again sighed the inspector. They sighed, uttered exclamations of horror, drank a glass of tea each, and went to the wing. Get back, the orderly cried to the peasants. Going to the wing, the examining magistrate began his work by examining the bedroom door. The door proved to be of pine, painted yellow, and was uninjured. Nothing was found which could serve as a clue. They had to break in the door. "'Everyone not here on business is requested to keep away,' said the magistrate, when, after much hammering and shaking, the door yielded to axe and chisel. "'I request this in the interest of the investigation. Orderly, don't let anyone in.' Trubikov, his assistant, and the inspector opened the door, and, hesitatingly, one after the other, entered the room. Their eyes met the following sight. Beside the single window stood the big wooden bed, with a huge feather mattress. On the crumpled feather bed lay a tumbled, crumpled quilt. The pillow, in a cotton pillow case, also much crumpled, was dragging on the floor. On the table beside the bed lay a silver watch and a silver twenty-kopeck piece. Beside them lay some sulphur matches, Beside the bed, the little table and the single chair, there was no furniture in the room. Looking under the bed, the inspector saw a couple of dozen empty bottles, an old straw hat, and a quart of vodka. Under the table lay one top boot, covered with dust. Casting a glance around the room, the magistrate frowned and grew red in the face. Scoundrels, he muttered, clenching his fists. And where is Marcus Ivanovitch? asked Dukovsky in a low voice. "'Mind your own business,' Trubikov answered roughly. "'Be good enough to examine the floor. This is not the first case of the kind I have had to deal with.' Ugraf Kuzmich,' he said, turning to the inspector and lowering his voice, "'in 1870 I had another case like this. But you must remember it, the murder of the merchant Potraitov.' 
It was just the same there. The scoundrels murdered him and dragged the corpse out through the window. Chubikov went up to the window, pulled the curtain to one side, and carefully pushed the window. The window opened. It opens, you see. It wasn't fastened. Hmm. There are tracks under the window. Look, there is the track of a knee. Somebody got in there. We must examine the window thoroughly. There is nothing special to be found on the floor, said Dukovsky. No stains or scratches. The only thing I found was a struck safety match. Here it is. So far as I remember, Markus Ivanovich did not smoke. And he always used sulphur matches, never safety matches. Perhaps this safety match may serve as a clue. Oh, do shut up, cried the magistrate deprecatingly. You go on about your match. I can't abide these dreamers. Instead of chasing matches, you had better examine the bed. After a thorough examination of the bed, Dukovsky reported, There are no spots either of blood or of anything else. There are likewise no new torn places. On the pillow there are signs of teeth. The quilt is stained with something which looks like beer and smells like beer. The general aspect of the bed gives grounds for thinking that a struggle took place on it. I know there was a struggle without your telling me. You are not being asked about a struggle. Instead of looking for struggles, you had better... Here is one top boot, but there is no sign of the other. Well, and what of that? It proves that they strangled him while he was taking his boots off. He hadn't time to take the second boot off when... There you go! And how do you know they strangled him? There are marks of teeth on the pillow. The pillow itself is badly crumpled and thrown a couple of yards from the bed. Listen to his foolishness. Better come into the garden. You would be better employed examining the garden than digging around here. I can do that without you. When they reached the garden, they began by examining the grass. The grass under the window was crushed and trampled. A bushy burdock growing under the window close to the wall was also trampled. Dukovsky succeeded in finding on it some broken twigs and a piece of cotton wool. On the upper branches were found some fine hairs of dark blue wool. What colour was his last suit? Dukovsky asked Psykov. Yellow crash. Excellent. You see, they were blue. A few twigs of the burdock were cut off and carefully wrapped in paper by the investigators. At this point, police captain Atsuyibashev Svistakovsky and Dr. Tyutyev arrived. The captain bade them good day, and immediately began to satisfy his curiosity. The doctor, a tall, very lean man with dull eyes, a long nose and a pointed chin, without greeting anyone or asking about anything, sat down on a log, sighed, and began, "'The Servians are at war again.' What in heaven's name can they want now? Austria, it's all you're doing. The examination of the window from the outside did not supply any conclusive data. The examination of the grass and the bushes nearest to the window yielded a series of useful clues. For example, Dukovsky succeeded in discovering a long dark streak made up of spots on the grass, which led some distance into the centre of the garden. The streak ended under one of the lilac bushes, in a dark brown stain. Under this same lilac bush was found the top boot, which turned out to be the fellow of the boot already found in the bedroom. That is a blood stain made some time ago, said Dukovsky, examining the spot. At the word blood, 
the doctor rose, and going over lazily, looked at the spot. "'Yes, it is blood,' he muttered. "'That shows he wasn't strangled, if there was blood,' said Chubikov, looking sarcastically at Dukovsky. "'They strangled him in the bedroom, and here, fearing he might come round again, they struck him a blow with some sharp-pointed instrument. The stain under the bush proves that he lay there a considerable time, while they were looking about for some way of carrying him out of the garden.' "'Well, and how about the boot?' "'The boot confirms completely my idea that they murdered him "'while he was taking his boots off before going to bed. "'He had already taken off one boot, and the other, this one here, "'he had only had time to take half off. "'The half-off boot came off of itself, "'while the body was dragged over and fell. "'There's a lively imagination for you,' laughed Chubikov. "'He goes on and on like that. "'When will you learn enough to drop your deductions?' Instead of arguing and deducing, it would be much better if you took some of the blood-stained grass for analysis. When they had finished their examination and drawn a plan of the locality, the investigators went to the director's office to write their report and have breakfast. While they were breakfasting, they went on talking. The watch, the money, and so on, all untouched, Chubikov began, leading off the talk, show as clearly as two and two are four, that the murder was not committed for the purpose of robbery. "'The murder was committed by an educated man,' insisted Dukovsky. "'What evidence have you of that?' "'The safety match proves that to me, for the peasants hereabouts are not yet acquainted with safety matches. Only the landowners use them, and by no means all of them. And it is evident that there was not one murderer, but at least three. Two held him, while one killed him. Klasov was strong.' and the murderers must have known it. What good would his strength be, supposing he was asleep? The murderers came on him while he was taking off his boots. If he was taking off his boots, that proves he wasn't asleep. Stop inventing your deductions. Better eat. In my opinion, your worship, said the gardener Ephraim, setting the samovar on the table, it was nobody but Nicholas who did this dirty trick. Quite possible, said Psykov. "'And who is Nicholas?' "'The master's valet, your worship,' answered Ephraim. "'Who else could it be? "'He is a rascal, your worship. "'He is a drunkard and a blackguard, "'the like of which heaven should not permit. "'He always took the master his vodka "'and put the master to bed. "'Who else could it be? "'And I also venture to point out to your worship "'he once boasted at the public house "'that he would kill the master. "'It happened on account of Aquilina, the woman, you know.' He was making up to a soldier's widow. She pleased the master. The master made friends with her himself, and Nicholas, naturally, he was mad. He is rolling about drunk in the kitchen now. He is crying and telling lies, saying he is sorry for the master. The examining magistrate ordered Nicholas to be brought. Nicholas, a lanky young fellow, with a long freckled nose, narrow-chested, and wearing an old jacket of his master's, entered Psykov's room, and bowed low before the magistrate. His face was sleepy and tear-stained. He was tipsy and could hardly keep his feet. "'Where is your master?' Trubikov asked him. "'Murdered, your worship.' As he said this, Nicholas blinked and began to weep. "'We know he was murdered. But where is he now? Where is his body?' "'They say he was dragged out of the window and buried in the garden.' Hm. The results of the investigation are known in the kitchen already. That's bad.' 
Where were you, my good fellow, the night the master was murdered? Saturday night, that is. Nicholas raised his head, stretched his neck, and began to think. I don't know, your worship, he said. I was drunk and don't remember. An alibi, whispered Dukovsky, smiling and rubbing his hands. So, and why is there blood under the master's window? Nicholas jerked his head up and considered. Hurry up! said the captain of police. Right away. That blood doesn't amount to anything, your worship. I was cutting a chicken's throat. I was doing it quite simply, in the usual way, when all of a sudden it broke away and started to run. That is where the blood came from. Ephraim declared that Nicholas did kill a chicken every evening, and always in some new place, but that nobody ever heard of a half-killed chicken running about the garden, though of course it wasn't impossible. An alibi, sneered Dukovsky, and what an asinine alibi. Did you know Aquilina? Yes, your worship, I know her. And the master cut you out with her? Not at all. He cut me out, Mr. Psykov here, Ivan Mikhailovich. And the master cut Ivan Mikhailovich out. That is how it was. Psykov grew confused and began to scratch his left eye. Dukovsky looked at him attentively, noted his confusion, and started. He noticed that the director had dark blue trousers, which he had not observed before. The trousers reminded him of the dark blue threads found on the burdock. Trubikov, in his turn, glanced suspiciously at Psykov. "'Go,' he said to Nicholas. "'And now permit me to put a question to you, Mr. Psykov. "'Of course you were here last Saturday evening?' "'Yes, I had supper with Markus Ivanovich about ten o'clock.' And afterwards? 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 Really, I do not remember, stammered Psykov. I had a good deal to drink at supper. I don't remember when or where I went to sleep. Why are you all looking at me like that, as if I was the murderer? Where were you when you woke up? I was in the servant's kitchen, lying behind the stove. They can all confirm it. How I got behind the stove, I don't know. Do not get agitated. Do you know Aquilina? There's nothing extraordinary about that. She first liked you and then preferred Klausov? Yes. Ephraim, give us some more mushrooms. Do you want some more tea, Yugrov Kuzmich? A heavy oppressive silence began and lasted fully five minutes. Dukovsky silently kept his piercing eyes fixed on Psykov's pale face. The silence was finally broken by the examining magistrate. We must go to the house and talk with Maria Ivanovna, the sister of the deceased. Perhaps she may be able to supply some clues. Trubikov and his assistant expressed their thanks for the breakfast and went toward the house. They found Klausov's sister, Maria Ivanovna, an old maid of forty-five, at prayer, before the big case of family icons. When she saw the portfolios in her guests' hands and their official caps, she grew pale. Let me begin by apologizing for disturbing, so to speak, your devotions, began the gallant Chubikov, bowing and scraping. We have come to you with a request. Of course you have heard already. There is a suspicion that your dear brother, in some way or other, has been murdered. The will of God, you know. No one can escape death, neither Tsar nor Plowman. Could you not help us with some clue, some explanation? Oh, don't ask me said Maria Ivanovna, 
growing still paler, and covering her face with her hands. "'I can tell you nothing. Nothing. I beg you, I know nothing. What can I do? Oh, no, no. Not a word about my brother. If I die, I won't say anything.' Maria Ivanovna began to weep, and left the room. The investigators looked at each other, shrugged their shoulders, and beat a retreat. "'Confound the woman!' scolded Dukovsky, going out of the house. It is clear she knows something, and is concealing it. And the chambermaid has a queer expression, too. Wait, you wretches, we'll ferret it all out. In the evening, Chubikov and his deputy, lit on their road by the pale moon, wended their way homeward. They sat in their carriage and thought over the results of the day. Both were tired and kept silent. Chubikov was always unwilling to talk while travelling, and the talkative Dukovsky remained silent, to fall in with the elder man's humour. But at the end of their journey the deputy could hold in no longer, and said, "'It is quite certain,' he said, "'that Nicholas had something to do with the matter. "'Non dubitandum est. "'You can see by his face what sort of a case he is. "'His alibi betrays him, body and bones. "'But it is also certain that he did not see the thing going. "'He was only the stupid hired tool. "'You agree?' and the humble Psykov was not without some slight share in the matter. His dark blue breeches, his agitation, his lying behind the stove in terror after the murder, his alibi and Aquilina. Grind away, Emilian, it's your week. So, according to you, whoever knew Aquilina is the murderer? Hothead! You ought to be sucking a bottle and not handling affairs. You were one of Aquilina's admirers yourself. Does it follow that you are implicated too? Aquilina was cook in your house for a month. I am saying nothing about that. The night before that Saturday I was playing cards with you, and saw you, otherwise I should be after you too. It isn't the woman that matters, old chap. It is the mean, nasty, low spirit of jealousy that matters. The retiring young man was not pleased when they got the better of him, you see. His vanity, don't you see? He wanted revenge. Then those thick lips of his suggest passion. So there you have it. Wounded self-love and passion. That is quite enough motive for a murder. We have two of them in our hands, but who is the third? Nicholas and Psykov held him, but who smothered him? Psykov is shy, timid, an all-round coward. And Nicholas would not know how to smother with a pillow. His sort use an axe or a club. Some third person did the smothering, but who was it? Dukovsky crammed his hand down over his eyes and pondered. He remained silent until the carriage rolled up to the magistrate's door. Eureka, he said, entering the little house and throwing off his overcoat. Eureka, Nikolas Yermolaevich. The only thing I can't understand is how it did not occur to me sooner. Do you know who the third person was? Oh, for goodness sake, shut up. There is supper. Sit down to your evening meal. The magistrate and Dukovsky sat down to supper. Dukovsky poured himself out a glass of vodka, rose, drew himself up, and said with sparkling eyes, "'Well, learn that the third person, who acted in concert with that scoundrel Psykov, and did the smothering, was a woman. Yes, I mean the murdered man's sister, Maria Ivanovna.' Trubikov choked over his vodka and fixed his eyes on Dukovsky. You aren't, what's its name? Your head isn't, what do you call it? You haven't a pain in it? I am perfectly well. 
Very well, let us say I am crazy. But how do you explain her confusion when we appeared? How do you explain her unwillingness to give us any information? Let us admit that these are trifles. Very well, all right. But remember their relations. She detested her brother. She never forgave him for living apart from his wife. She is of the old faith, while in her eyes he is a godless profligate. There is where the germ of her hate was hatched. They say he succeeded in making her believe that he was an angel of Satan. He even went in for spiritualism in her presence. Well, what of that? You don't understand? She, as a member of the old faith, murdered him through fanaticism. It was not only that she was putting to death a weed, a profligate. She was freeing the world of an antichrist. And there, in her opinion, was her service, her religious achievement. Oh, you don't know those old maids of the old faith? Read Dostoevsky. And what does Lyskov say about them, or Pachersky? It was she, and nobody else, even if you cut me open. She smothered him. Oh, treacherous woman! Wasn't that the reason why she was kneeling before the icons when we came in, just to take our attention away? Let me kneel down and pray, she said to herself, and they will think I am tranquil and did not expect them. That is the plan of all novices in crime, Nicholas Yamulayevich, old pal. My dear old man, won't you entrust this business to me? Let me personally bring it through. Friend, I began it, and I will finish it. Chubikov shook his head and frowned. We know how to manage difficult matters ourselves, he said, and your business is not to push yourself in where you don't belong. Write from dictation when you are dictated to. That is your job. Dukovsky flared up, banged the door, and disappeared. Clever rascal, muttered Chubikov, glancing after him. Awfully clever, but too much of a hothead. I must buy him a cigar case at the fair as a present. The next day, early in the morning, a young man with a big head and a pursed-up mouth, who came from Klasov's place, was introduced to the magistrate's office. He said he was the shepherd Daniel, and brought a very interesting piece of information. I was a bit drunk, he said. I was with my pal till midnight. On my way home, as I was drunk, I went into the river for a bath. I was taking a bath when I looked up. Two men were walking along the dam, carrying something black. Shoo! I cried at them. They got scared and went off like the wind toward Makarev's cabbage garden. Strike me dead if they weren't carrying away the master. That same day, toward evening, Psykov and Nicholas were arrested and brought under guard to the district town. In the town they were committed to the cells of the prison. Part 2 A fortnight passed. It was morning. The magistrate Nicholas Yamulayevich was sitting in his office before a green table, turning over the papers of the Klausov case. Tukovsky was striding restlessly up and down like a wolf in a cage. "'You are convinced of the guilt of Nicholas and Psykov,' he said, nervously plucking at his young beard. "'Why will you not believe in the guilt of Maria Ivanovna? Are there not proofs enough for you?' "'I don't say I am not convinced. I am convinced, but somehow I don't believe it. There are no real proofs, but just a kind of philosophizing, fanaticism, this and that. You can't do without an axe and blood-stained sheets. Those jurists! Very well, I'll prove it to you. You will stop sneering at the psychological side of the affair. To Siberia with your Maria Ivanovna. I will prove it. If philosophy is not enough for you, 
I have something substantial for you. It will show you how correct my philosophy is. Just give me permission. What are you going on about? About the safety match. Have you forgotten it? I haven't. I'm going to find out who struck it in the murdered man's room. It was not Nicholas that struck it. It was not Psykov, for neither of them had any matches when they were examined. It was the third person, Maria Ivanovna. I will prove it to you. Just give me permission to go through the district to find out. That's enough. Sit down. Let's go on with the examination. Dukovsky sat down at a little table and plunged his long nose in a bundle of papers. Bring in Nicholas Tetikov, cried the examining magistrate. They brought Nicholas in. Nicholas was pale and thin as a rail. He was trembling. Tetikov, began Trubikov. In 1879 you were tried in the court of the First Division, convicted of theft and sentenced to imprisonment. In 1882 you were tried a second time for theft and were again imprisoned. We know all. Astonishment was depicted in Nicholas's face. The examining magistrate's omniscience startled him. But soon his expression of astonishment changed to extreme indignation. He began to cry and requested permission to go and wash his face and quiet down. They led him away. Bring in Psykov, ordered the examining magistrate. They brought in Psykov. The young man had changed greatly during the last few days. He had grown thin and pale and looked haggard. His eyes had an apathetic expression. Sit down, Psykov, said Trubikov. I hope that today you are going to be reasonable and will not tell lies as you did before. All these days you have denied that you had anything to do with the murder of Klausov, in spite of all the proofs that testify against you. That is foolish. Confession will lighten your guilt. This is the last time I'm going to talk to you. If you do not confess today, tomorrow it will be too late. Come, tell me all. I know nothing about it. I know nothing about your proofs, answered Psykov almost inaudibly. It's no use. Well, let me relate to you how the matter took place. On Saturday evening you were sitting in Klausov's sleeping room and drinking vodka and beer with him. Dukovsky fixed his eyes on Psykov's face and kept them there all through the examination. Nicholas was waiting on you. At one o'clock, Markos Ivanovich announced his intention of going to bed. He always went to bed at one o'clock. When he was taking off his boots and was giving you directions about details of management, you and Nicholas, at a given signal, seized your drunken master and threw him on the bed. One of you sat on his legs, the other on his head. Then a third person came in from the passage, a woman in a black dress, whom you know well, and who had previously arranged with you as to her share in your criminal deed. She seized a pillow and began to smother him. While the struggle was going on, the candle went out. The woman took a box of safety matches from her pocket and lit the candle. Was it not so? I see by your face that I am speaking the truth. But to go on, after you had smothered him and saw that he had ceased breathing, you and Nicholas pulled him through the window and laid him down near the burdock. Fearing that he might come round again, you struck him with something sharp. Then you carried him away and laid him down under a lilac bush for a short time. After resting a while and considering, you carried him across the fence. Then you entered the road. After that comes the dam. Near the dam, a peasant frightened you. Well, what is the matter with you? I am suffocating, replied Psykov 
Very well, have it so. Only let me go out, please. They led Psykov away. At last he has confessed, cried Chubikov, stretching himself luxuriously. He has betrayed himself. And didn't I get round him cleverly? Regularly caught him napping. And he doesn't deny the woman in the black dress, exulted Dukovsky. But all the same, that safety match is tormenting me frightfully. I can't stand it any longer. Goodbye. I am off. Dukovsky put on his cap and drove off. Chubikov began to examine Aquilina. Aquilina declared that she knew nothing whatever about it. At six that evening, Dukovsky returned. He was more agitated than he had ever been before. His hands trembled so that he could not even unbutton his greatcoat. His cheeks glowed. It was clear that he did not come empty-handed. Veni vidi vici, he cried, rushing into Chubikov's room and falling into an armchair. I swear to you on my honour I begin to believe that I am a genius. Listen, devil take us all. It is funny and it is sad. We have caught three already, isn't that so? Well, I have found the fourth, and a woman at that. You will never believe who it is. But listen, I went to Klausov's village and began to make a spiral round it. I visited all the little shops, public houses, dram shops on the road, everywhere asking for safety matches. Everywhere they said they hadn't any. I made a wide round. Twenty times I lost faith, and twenty times I got back again. I knocked about the whole day, and only an hour ago I got on the track. Three versts from here. They gave me a packet of ten boxes. One box was missing. Immediately, who bought the other box? Such a one. She was pleased with them. Old man. Nicholas Yemulayevich. See what a fellow who was expelled from the seminary and who has read Gaborio can do. From today on I begin to respect myself. Oof! Well, come. Come where? To her, to number four. We must hurry, otherwise, otherwise I'll burst with impatience. Do you know who she is? You'll never guess. Olga Petrovna. Marcus Ivanovitch's wife. His own wife. That's who it is. She is the person who bought the matchbox. You, you, you are out of your mind. It's quite simple. To begin with, she smokes. Secondly, she was head and ears in love with Klausov, even after he refused to live in the same house with her, because she was always scolding his head off. Why, they say she used to beat him because she loved him so much. And then he positively refused to stay in the same house. Love turned sour. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. But come along, quick, or it will be dark. Come! I am not yet sufficiently crazy to go and disturb a respectable, honourable woman in the middle of the night for a crazy boy. Respectable, honourable. Do honourable women murder their husbands? After that you are a rag, and not an examining magistrate. I never ventured to call you names before, but now you compel me to. Rag, dressing gown. Dear Nicholas Yemulayevich, do come, I beg of you. The magistrate made a deprecating motion with his hand. I beg of you. I ask not for myself, but in the interests of justice. I beg you, I implore you. Do what I ask you to, just this once. Dukovsky went down on his knees. Nicholas Yamulayevich, be kind. Call me a blackguard and ne'er do well, if I am mistaken about this woman. You see what an affair it is, what a case it is. A romance. A woman murdering her own husband for love. 
The fame of it will go all over Russia. They will make an investigator in all important cases. Understand, O oh foolish old man. The magistrate frowned and undecidedly stretched his hand toward his cap. Oh, the devil take you, he said. Let us go. It was dark when the magistrate's carriage rolled up to the porch of the old country house in which Olga Petrovna had taken refuge with her brother. "'What pigs we are!' said Trubikov, taking hold of the bell, to disturb a poor woman like this. "'It's all right, it's all right. Don't get frightened. We can say that we have broken a spring.' Trubikov and Dukovsky were met at the threshold by a tall buxom woman of three-and-twenty, with pitch-black brows and juicy red lips. It was Olga Petrovna herself, apparently not in the least distressed by the recent tragedy. "'Oh, what a pleasant surprise!' she said, smiling broadly. "'You are just in time for supper. Kuzma Petrovitch is not at home. He is visiting the priest and has stayed late. But we'll get on without him. Be seated. You have come from the examination?' "'Yes. We broke a spring, you know,' began Trubikov, entering the sitting-room and sinking into an armchair. "'Take her unawares at once!' whispered Dukovsky. "'Take her unawares!' "'A spring, hum, yes, so we came in.' "'Take her unawares, I tell you. She will guess what the matter is if you drag things out like that.' "'Well, do it yourself as you want, but let me get out of it,' muttered, Ch muttered Chubikov, rising and going to the window. "'Yes, a spring,' began Dukovsky, going close to Olga Petrovna and wrinkling his long nose. We did not drive over here to take supper with you or to see Kuzma Petrovitch. We came here to ask you, respected madam, where Markos Ivanovitch is, whom you murdered. What? Markos Ivanovitch murdered? stammered Olga Petrovna, and her broad face suddenly and instantaneously flushed bright scarlet. I don't understand. I ask you in the name of the law. Where is Klausov? We know all. "'Who told you?' Olga Petrovna asked in a low voice, unable to endure Dukovsky's glance. "'Be so good as to show us where he is. But how did you find out? Who told you? We know all. I demand it in the name of the law.' The examining magistrate, emboldened by her confusion, came forward and said, "'Show us and we will go away. Otherwise we—what do you want with him?' "'Madam, what is the use of these questions? We ask you to show us.' You tremble, you are agitated. Yes, he has been murdered, and, if you must have it, murdered by you. Your accomplices have betrayed you. Olga Petrovna grew pale. Come, she said in a low voice, wringing her hands. I have him hid in the bathhouse. Only for heaven's sake, do not tell Kuzma Petrovitch. I beg and implore you, he will never forgive me. Olga Petrovna took down a big key from the wall, and led her guests through the kitchen and passage to the courtyard. The courtyard was in darkness. Fine rain was falling. Olga Petrovna walked in advance of them. Trubikov and Dukovsky strode behind her through the long grass. As the odour of wild hemp and dishwater splashing under their feet reached them, the courtyard was wide. Soon the dishwater ceased, and they felt freshly broken earth under their feet. In the darkness appeared the shadowy outlines of trees, and among the trees a little house with a crooked chimney. "'That is the bathhouse,' said Olga Petrovna. "'But I implore you, do not tell my brother. If you do, I'll never hear the end of it.' 
Going up to the bathhouse, Tribikov and Dukovsky saw a huge padlock on the door. "'Get your candle and matches ready,' whispered the examining magistrate to his deputy. Olga Petrovna unfastened the padlock and let her guests into the bathhouse. Dukovsky struck a match and lit up the anteroom. In the middle of the anteroom stood a table. On the table, beside the sturdy little samovar, stood a soup tureen with old cabbage soup and a plate with the remnants of some sauce. Forward! They went into the next room, where the bath was. There was a table there also. On the table was a dish with some ham, a bottle of vodka, plates, knives, forks. "'But where is it? Where is the murdered man?' asked the examining magistrate. "'On the top tier,' whispered Olga Petrovna, still pale and trembling. Dukovsky took the candle in his hand and climbed up to the top tier of the sweating frame. There he saw a long human body lying motionless on a large feather bed. A slight snore came from the body. "'You are making fun of us, devil take it!' cried Dukovsky. "'That is not the murdered man!' Some live fool is lying here. Here, whoever you are, the devil take you. The body drew in a quick breath and stirred. Dukovsky stuck his elbow into it. It raised a hand, stretched itself, and lifted its head. Who is sneaking in here? he asked in a hoarse, heavy bass. What do you want? Dukovsky raised the candle to the face of the unknown and cried out. In the red nose, dishevelled, unkempt hair, the pitch-black moustaches, one of which was jauntily twisted and pointed insolently toward the ceiling, he recognized the gallant cavalryman, Klausov. "'You, Markus Ivanovich? Is it possible?' The examining magistrate glanced sharply up at him and stood spellbound. "'Yes, it is I. That's you, Dukovsky? What the devil do you want here? And who's that other mug down there? Great snakes, it's the examining magistrate. What fate has brought him here?' Klasov rushed down and threw his arms round Tribikov in a cordial embrace. Olga Petrovna slipped through the door. "'How did you come here? Let's have a drink, devil take it!' "'Chatatitotum! Chatatitotum! Let us drink! But who brought you here? How did you find out that I was here? But it doesn't matter. Let's have a drink!' Klasov lit the lamp and poured out three glasses of vodka. "'That is, I don't understand you.' said the examining magistrate, running his hands over him. Is this you or not you? Oh, shut up! You want to preach me a sermon? Don't trouble yourself. Young Dukovsky, empty your glass. Friends, let us bring this... What are you looking at? Drink! All the same, I do not understand, said the examining magistrate, mechanically drinking off the vodka. W what are you here for? Why shouldn't I be here if I am all right here? Klasov drained his glass and took a bite of ham. "'I am in captivity here, as you see, in solitude in a cavern like a ghost or a bogey. Drink!' She carried me off and locked me up, and, well, I am living here in the deserted bathhouse like a hermit. I am fed. Next week I think I'll try to get out. I am tired of it here.' "'Incomprehensible,' said Dukovsky. "'What is incomprehensible about it?' "'Incomprehensible! For heaven's sake, how did your boot get into the garden?' "'What boot?' "'We found one boot in the sleeping-room and the other in the garden.' "'And what do you want to know that for? It's none of your business. "'Why don't you drink, devil take you? 
If you wakened me, then drink with me. It is an interesting tale, brother, that of the boot. I didn't want to go with Olga. I don't like to be bossed. She came under the window and began to abuse me. She always was a termagant. You know what women are like, all of them. I was a bit drunk, so I took a boot and heaved it at her. Ha, ha, ha. Teach her not to scold another time. But it didn't, not a bit of it. She climbed in at the window, lit the lamp, and began to hammer poor tipsy me. She thrashed me, dragged me over here, and locked me in. She feeds me now, on love, vodka, and ham. But where are you off to, Chubikov? Where are you going? The examining magistrate swore and left the bathhouse. Dukovsky followed him, crestfallen. They silently took their seats in the carriage and drove off. The road never seemed to them so long and disagreeable as it did that time. Both remained silent. Trubikov trembled with rage all the way. Dukovsky hid his nose in the collar of his overcoat, as if he was afraid that the darkness and the drizzling rain might read the shame in his face. When they reached home, the examining magistrate found Dr. Tyutyev awaiting him. The doctor was sitting at the table and, sighing deeply, was turning over the pages of the Neva. "'Such goings-on there are in the world,' he said, meeting the examining magistrate with a sad smile. "'Austria is at it again, and Gladstone also to some extent.' Trubikov threw his cap under the table and shook himself. "'Deviled skeletons, don't you plague me! A thousand times I have told you not to bother me with your politics! This is no question of politics. And you,' said Trubikov, turning to Dukovsky and shaking his fist, I won't forget this in a thousand years. But the safety match, how could I know? Choke yourself with your safety match. Get out of my way. Don't make me mad, or the devil only knows what I'll do to you. Dukovsky sighed, took his hat, and went out. I'll go and get drunk, he decided, going through the door and gloomily wending his way to the public house. End of The Safety Match by Anton Chekhov Recorded by Gazina in October 2007. A Scandal in Bohemia by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ralph Snelson A Scandal in Bohemia by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle From the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes To Sherlock Holmes she is always the woman. I have seldom heard him mention her under any other name. In his eyes she eclipses and predominates the whole of her sex. It was not that he felt any emotion akin to love for Irene Adler. All emotions, and that one particularly, were abhorrent to his cold, precise, but admirably balanced mind. He was, I take it, the most perfect reasoning and observing machine that the world has seen. But as a lover he would have placed himself in a false position. He never spoke of the softer passions, save with a jibe and a sneer. They were admirable things for the observer, excellent for drawing the veil from men's motives and actions, but for the trained reasoner to admit such intrusions into his own delicate and finely adjusted temperament was to introduce a distracting factor which might throw a doubt upon all his mental results. Grit in a sensitive instrument, or a crack in one of his own high-power lenses, 
would not be more disturbing than a strong emotion in a nature such as his. And yet there was but one woman to him, and that woman was the late Irene Adler, of dubious and questionable memory. I had seen little of Holmes lately. My marriage had drifted us away from each other. My own complete happiness and the home-centered interest which rise up around the man who first finds himself master of his own establishment were sufficient to absorb all my attention while Holmes, who loathed every form of society with his whole bohemian soul, remained in our lodgings in Baker Street, buried among his old books, and alternating from week to week between cocaine and ambition, the drowsiness of the drug, and the fierce energy of his own keen nature. He was still, as ever, deeply attracted by the study of crime, and occupied his immense faculties and extraordinary powers of observation in following out those clues and clearing up those mysteries which had been abandoned as hopeless by the official police. From time to time I heard some vague account of his doings, of his summons to Odessa in the case of the Trepoff murder, of his clearing up of the singular tragedy of the Atkinson brothers at Trincomalee, and finally of the mission which he had accomplished so delicately and successfully for the reigning family of Holland. Beyond these signs of his activity, however, which I merely share with all the readers of the daily press, I knew little of my former friend and companion. One night, it was on the 20th of March, 1888, I was returning from a journey to a patient, for I had now returned to civil practice, when my way led me through Baker Street, as I passed the well-remembered door, which must always be associated in my mind with my wooing, and with the dark incidents of the study in Scarlet, I was seized with a keen desire to see Holmes again, and to know how he was employing his extraordinary powers. His rooms were brilliantly lit, and even as I looked up I saw his tall, spare figure pass twice in a dark silhouette against the blind. He was pacing the room swiftly, eagerly, with his head sunk upon his breast, and his hands clasped behind him. To me, who knew his every mood and habit, his attitude and manner told their own story. He was at work again. He had risen out of his drug-created dreams, and was hot upon the scent of some new problem. I rang the bell, and was shown up to the chamber which had formerly been in part my own. His manner was not effusive. It seldom was. But he was glad, I think, to see me. With hardly a word spoken, but with a kindly eye, he waved me to an armchair, threw across his case of cigars, and indicated a spirit case and a gasogeny in the corner. Then he stood before the fire, and looked me over in his singular introspective fashion. "'Wedlock suits you,' he remarked. "'I think, Watson, that you have put on seven and a half pounds since I saw you.' Seven, I answered. "'Indeed, I should have thought a little more.' "'Just a trifle more, I fancy, Watson. "'And in practice again, I observe. "'You did not tell me that you intended to go into harness. "'Then how do you know?' "'I see it. I deduce it. "'How do I know that you have been getting yourself very wet lately, "'and that you have a most clumsy and careless servant-girl?' "'My dear Holmes,' said I, "'this is too much. "'You would certainly have been burned had you lived a few centuries ago.' It is true that I had a country walk on Thursday, and came home in a dreadful mass, but as I have changed my clothes I can't imagine how you deduce it. As to Mary Jane, she is incorrigible, and my wife has given her notice. But there again I fail to see how you work it out. 
He chuckled to himself and rubbed his long, nervous hands together. "'It is simplicity itself,' said he. "'My eyes tell me that on the inside of your left shoe, just where the firelight strikes it, the leather is scored by six almost parallel cuts. Obviously they have been caused by someone who has very carelessly scraped round the edges of the sole in order to remove crusted mud from it. Hence you see my double deduction that you had been out in vile weather, and that you had a particularly malignant boot-slitting specimen of the London slavey. As to your practice, if a gentleman walks into my room smelling of idioform, with a black mark of nitrate of silver upon his right forefinger, and a bulge on the right side of his top hat, to show where he has secreted his stethoscope, I must be dull indeed if I do not pronounce him to be an active member of the medical profession. I could not help laughing at the ease with which he explained his process of deduction. When I hear you give your reasons, I remarked, the thing always appears to me to be so ridiculously simple that I could easily do it myself, though at each successive instance of your reasoning I am baffled until you explain your process. And yet I believe that my eyes are quite as good as yours. Quite so, he answered, lighting a cigarette and throwing himself down into an armchair. You see, but you do not observe. The distinction is clear. For example, you have frequently seen the steps which lead up from the hall to this room. Frequently? How often? Well, some hundreds of times. Then how many are there? How many? I don't know. Quite so. You have not observed. And yet you have seen. That is just my point. Now I know that there are seventeen steps, because I have both seen and observed. By the way, since you are interested in these little problems, and since you are good enough to chronicle one or two of my trifling experiences, you may be interested in this. He threw over a sheet of thick, pink-tinted notepaper, which had been lying open upon the table. It came by the last post, said he. Read it aloud. The note was undated, and without either signature or address. There will call upon you to-night at a quarter to eight o'clock, it said, a gentleman who desires to consult you upon a matter of the very deepest moment. Your recent services to one of the royal houses of Europe have shown that you are one who may safely be trusted with matters which are of an importance which can hardly be exaggerated. This account of you we have from all quarters received. Be in your chamber, then, at that hour, and do not take it amiss if your visitor wear a mask. This is indeed a mystery, I remarked. What do you imagine that it means? I have no data yet. It is a capital mistake to theorize before one has data. Insensibly one begins to twist facts to suit theories instead of theories to suit facts. But the note itself, what do you deduce from it? I carefully examined the writing, and the paper upon which it was written. The man who wrote it was presumably well-to-do, I remarked, endeavoring to imitate my companion's processes. Such paper could not be bought under half a crown a packet. It is peculiarly strong and stiff. Peculiar, uh, that is the very word, said Holmes. It is not an English paper at all. Hold it up to the light. I did so, and saw a large E with a small G, a P, and a large G with a small T woven into the texture of the paper. What do you make of that? asked Holmes. 
the name of the maker, no doubt, or his monogram, rather. Not at all. The G, with the small T, stands for Gesellschaft, which is the German for company. It is a customary contraction, like our C-O. P, of course, stands for papier. Now for the E-G. Let us glance at our continental gazetteer. He took down a heavy brown volume from his shelves. Iglo, Eglonitz, uh, here we are, Egria. It is in a German-speaking country, in Bohemia, not far from Carlsbad. Remarkable as being the scene of the death of Wallenstein, and for its numerous glass factories and paper mills. Ha-ha, my boy, what do you make of that? His eyes sparkled, and he sent up a great blue triumphant cloud from his cigarette. The paper was made in Bohemia, I said. Precisely. And the man who wrote the note is a German. Do you note the peculiar construction of the sentence? This account of you we have from all quarters received? A Frenchman or Russian could not have written that. It is the German who is so uncourteous to his verbs. It only remains, therefore, to discover what is wanted by this German who writes upon bohemian paper and prefers wearing a mask to showing his face. And here he comes, if I am not mistaken, to resolve all our doubts. As he spoke, there was the sharp sound of horses' hoofs and grating wheels against the curb, followed by a sharp pull at the bell. Holmes whistled. A pair, by the sound, said he. Yes, he continued, glancing out the window. A nice little bruffum and a pair of beauties, a hundred and fifty guineas apiece. There's money in this case, Watson, if there is nothing else. I think that I had better go, Holmes. Not a bit, doctor. Stay where you are. I am lost without my Boswell, and this promises to be interesting. It would be a pity to miss it. But your client... Never mind him. I may want your help, and so may he. Here he comes. Sit down in that armchair, doctor, and give us your best attention. A slow and heavy step, which had been heard upon the stairs and in the passage, paused immediately outside the door. Then there was a loud and authoritative tap. "'Come in,' said Holmes. A man entered, who could hardly have been less than six feet six inches in height, with the chest and limbs of a Hercules. His dress, which was rich, with a richness which would in England be looked upon as akin to bad taste. Heavy bands of astrachum were slashed across the sleeves and fronts of his double-breasted coat, while the deep blue cloak which was thrown over his shoulders was lined with a flame-colored silk, and secured at the neck with a brooch which consisted of a single flaming barrel. Boots, which extended halfway up his calves, and which were trimmed at the tops with rich brown fur, completed the impression of barbaric opulence, which was suggested by his whole appearance. He carried a broad-brimmed hat in his hand, while he wore across the upper part of his face, extending down past the cheekbones, a black vizard mask, which he had apparently adjusted that very moment, for his hand was still raised to it as he entered. From the lower part of the face he appeared to be a man of strong character, with a thick hanging lip and a long straight chin suggestive of resolution pushed to the length of obstinacy. "'You had my note?' he asked with a deep harsh voice and strongly marked German accent. "'I told you that I would call.' 
He looked from one to the other of us, as if uncertain which to address. "'Pray take a seat,' said Holmes. "'This is my friend and colleague, Dr. Watson, who is occasionally good enough to help me in my cases. Whom have I the honor to address?' "'You may address me as Count von Kram, a Bohemian nobleman. I understand that this gentleman, your friend, is a man of honor and discretion, whom I may trust with a matter of the most extreme importance.' If not, I should much prefer to communicate with you alone. I rose to go, but Holmes caught me by the wrist and pushed me back into my chair. It is both or none, said he. You may say before this gentleman anything which you may say to me. The Count shrugged his broad shoulders. Then I must begin, said he, by binding you both to absolute secrecy for two years. At the end of that time the matter will be of no importance. At present it is not too much to say that it is of such weight it may have an influence upon European history. I promise, said Holmes, and I. You will excuse this mask, continued our strange visitor. The august person who employs me wishes his agent to be unknown to you, and I may confess at once that the title by which I have just called myself is not exactly my own. I was aware of it said Holmes dryly. The circumstances are of great delicacy, and every precaution has to be taken to quench what might grow to be an immense scandal and seriously compromise one of the reigning families of Europe. To speak plainly, the matter implicates the great house of Ormstein, hereditary kings of Bohemia. I was also aware of that, murmured Holmes, settling himself down in his armchair and closing his eyes. Our visitor glanced with some apparent surprise at the languid, lounging figure of the man who had been no doubt depicted to him as the most incisive reasoner and most energetic agent in Europe. Holmes slowly reopened his eyes and looked impatiently at his gigantic client. "'If your majesty would condescend to state your case,' he remarked, "'I should be better able to advise you.' The man sprang from his chair and paced up and down the room in uncontrollable agitation. Then, with a gesture of desperation, he tore the mask from his face and hurled it upon the ground. "'You are right,' he cried. "'I am the king. Why should I attempt to conceal it?' "'Why, indeed,' murmured Holmes. "'Your majesty had not spoken before. I was aware that I was addressing Wilhelm Gottsreich Sigismond von Ormstein, Grand Duke of Kasselfelstein and hereditary king of bohemia but you can understand said our strange visitor sitting down once more and passing his hand over his high white forehead you can understand that i am not accustomed to doing such business in my own person yet the matter was so delicate that i could not confide it to an agent without putting myself in his power i have come incognito from prague for the purpose of consulting you then pray consult, said Holmes, shutting his eyes once more. The facts are briefly these. Some five years ago, during a lengthy visit to Warsaw, I made the acquaintance of the well-known adventuress Irene Adler. The name is no doubt familiar to you. Kindly look her up in my index, doctor, murmured Holmes, without opening his eyes. For many years he had adopted a system of docketing all paragraphs concerning men and things, so that it was difficult to name a subject or a person on which he could not at once furnish information. 
In this case I found her biography sandwiched in between that of a Hebrew rabbi and that of a staff commander who had written a monograph upon the deep-sea fishes. Let me see, said Holmes. Hmm. Born in New Jersey in the year 1858. Contralto. Hmm. La Hmm. Prima Donna, Imperial Opera, Warsaw. Yes. Retired from operatic stage. Ha. Ah. Living in London. Quite so. Your Majesty, as I understand, became entangled with this young person, wrote her some compromising letters, and is now desirous of getting those letters back. Precisely so. But how? Was there a secret marriage? None. No legal papers or certificates? None. Then I fail to follow your majesty. If this young person should produce her letters for blackmailing or other purposes, how is she to prove their authenticity? There is the writing. Poo-foo. Forgery. My private note-paper. Stolen. My own seal. Imitated. My photograph. But... We were both in the photograph. Oh, dear, that is very bad. Your Majesty has indeed committed an indiscretion. I was mad, insane. You have compromised yourself seriously. I was only a crown prince then. I was young. I am but thirty now. It must be recovered. We have tried and failed. Your Majesty must pay. It must be bought. She will not sell. Stolen, then. Five attempts have been made. Twice burglars in my pay ransacked her house. Once we diverted her luggage when she traveled. Twice she has been waylaid. There has been no result. No sign of it? Absolutely none. Holmes laughed. It is quite a pretty little problem, said he. But a very serious one to me, returned the king reproachfully. Very, indeed. And what does she propose to do with the photograph? To ruin me. But how? I am about to be married. So I have heard. To Clotilda Lothman von Saxe-Meningen, second daughter of the King of Scandinavia. You may know the strict principles of her family. She is herself the very soul of delicacy. A shadow of a doubt as to my conduct would bring the matter to an end. And Irene Adler threatens to send them the photograph, and she will do it. I know that she will do it. You do not know her, but she has a soul of steel. She has the face of the most beautiful of women, and the mind of the most resolute of men. Rather than I should marry another woman, there are no lengths to which she would not go. None. You are sure that she has not sent it yet? I am sure. And why? Because she has said that she would send it on the day when the betrothal was publicly proclaimed. That will be next Monday. Oh, then we have three days yet, said Holmes with a yawn. That is very fortunate, as I have one or two matters of importance to look into just at present. Your Majesty will, of course, stay in London for the present? Certainly. You will find me at the Langham under the name of the Count von Kram. Then I shall drop you a line to let you know how we progress. Pray do so. I shall be all anxiety. Uh, then as to the money. You have carte blanche. 
Absolutely. I tell you that I would give one of the provinces of my kingdom to have that photograph, and for present expenses. The king took a heavy chamois leather bag from under his cloak and laid it on the table. There are three hundred pounds in gold and seven hundred in notes, he said. Holmes scribbled a receipt upon a sheet of his notebook and handed it to him. And Mademoiselle's address, he asked. Is Briony Lodge, Serpentine Avenue, St. John's Wood. Holmes took a note of it. One other question, said he. Was the photograph a cabinet? It was. Then good night, Your Majesty, and I trust that we shall soon have some good news for you. And good night, Watson, he added, as the wheels of the Royal Bruffham rolled down the street. If you will be good enough to call tomorrow afternoon at three o'clock, I should like to chat this little matter over with you. At three o'clock, precisely, I was at Baker Street, but Holmes had not yet returned. The landlady informed me that he had left the house shortly after eight o'clock in the morning. I sat down beside the fire, however, with the intention of awaiting him, however long he might be. I was already deeply interested in his inquiry, for though it was surrounded by none of the grim and strange features which were associated with the two crimes which I have already recorded, still the nature of the case and the exalted station of his client gave it a character of its own. Indeed, apart from the nature of the investigation which my friend had on hand, there was something in his masterly grasp of a situation and his keen incisive reasoning which made it a pleasure to me to study his system of work and to follow the quick, subtle methods by which he disentangled the most inextricable mysteries. So accustomed was I to his invariable success that the very possibility of his failing had ceased to enter into my head. It was close upon four before the door opened, and a drunken-looking groom, ill-camped and side-whiskered with an inflamed face and disreputable clothes, walked into the room. Accustomed as I was to my friend's amazing powers in the use of disguises, I had to look three times before I was certain that it was indeed he. With a nod he vanished into the bedroom, whence he emerged in five minutes, tweed-suited and respectable, as of old. Putting his hands into his pockets, he stretched out his legs in front of the fire, and laughed heartily for some minutes. "'Well, really,' he cried, and then choked and laughed again until he was obliged to lie back, limp and helpless in the chair. "'What is it?' "'It's quite too funny. I am sure you could never guess how I employed my morning, or what I ended by doing. I can't imagine.' I suppose that you have been watching the habits and perhaps the house of Miss Irene Adler. Quite so, but the sequel was rather unusual. I will tell you, however. I left the house a little after eight o'clock this morning in the character of a groom out of work. There is a wonderful sympathy and freemasonry among horsey men. Be one of them, and you will know all that there is to know. I soon found Briony Lodge. It is a bijou villa, with a garden at the back, but built out in front right up to the road, two stories, chub block to the door, large sitting-room on the right side, well furnished, with long windows almost to the floor, and those preposterous English window-fasteners which a child could open. Behind there was nothing remarkable, save that the passage-window could be reached from the top of the coach-house. I walked round it, and examined it closely from every point of view, but without noting anything else of interest. 
I then lounged down the street and found, as I expected, that there was a mews in a lane which runs down by one wall of the garden. I lent the ostlers a hand in rubbing down their horses, and received in exchange twopence, a glass of half and half, two fills of shag tobacco, and as much information as I could desire about Miss Adler to say nothing of half a dozen other people in the neighborhood, in whom I was not in the least interested, but whose biographies I was compelled to listen to. And what of Irene Adler, I asked? Oh, she has turned all the men's heads down in that part. She is the daintiest thing under a bonnet on this planet. So say the serpentine muse to a man. She lives quietly, sings at concerts, drives out at five every day, and returns at seven sharp for dinner. Seldom goes out at other times, except when she sings. Has only one male visitor, but a good deal of him. He is dark, handsome, and dashing. Never calls less than once a day, and often twice. He is a Mr. Godfrey Norton of the Inner Temple. See the advantages of a cabman as a confidant? They had driven him home a dozen times from Serpentine Mews, and knew all about him. When I had listened to all they had to tell, I began to walk up and down near Briani Lodge once more, and to think over my plan of campaign. This Godfrey Norton was evidently an important factor in the matter. He was a lawyer. That sounded ominous. What was the relation between them, and what the object of his repeated visits? Was she his client, his friend, or his mistress? If the former, she had probably transferred the photograph to his keeping. If the latter, it was less likely. On the issue of this question depended whether I should continue my work at Briony Lodge, or turn my attention to the gentleman's chambers in the temple. It was a delicate point, and it widened the field of my inquiry. I fear that I bore you with these details, but I have to let you see my little difficulties if you are to understand the situation. I am following you closely, I answered. I was still balancing the matter in my mind when a handsome cab drove up to Briony Lodge, and a gentleman sprang out. He was a remarkably handsome man, dark, aquiline, and moustached, evidently the man of whom I had heard. He appeared to be in a great hurry, shouted to the cabman to wait, and brushed past the maid who opened the door with the air of a man who was thoroughly at home. He was in the house about half an hour, and I could catch glimpses of him in the windows of the sitting-room, pacing up and down, talking excitedly, and waving his arms. Of her I could see nothing. Presently he emerged, looking even more flurried than before. As he stepped up to the cab, he pulled a gold watch from his pocket, and looked at it earnestly. "'Drive like the devil!' he shouted. First to Gross and Hankey's in Regent Street, and then to the church at St. Monica in the Edgware Road. Half a guinea, if you do it in twenty minutes. Away they went, and I was just wondering whether I should not do well to follow them when up the lane came a neat little landau, the coachman with his coat only half-buttoned, and his tie under his ear, while all the tags of his harness were sticking out of the buckles. It hadn't pulled up before she shot out of the hall door and into it. I only caught a glimpse of her at the moment, but she was a lovely woman with a face that a man might die for. "'The church at St. Monica, John,' she cried, "'and half a sovereign if you reach it in twenty minutes. This was quite too good to lose, Watson. I was just balancing whether I should run for it 
or whether I should perch behind her landau when a cab came through the street. The driver looked twice at such a shabby fare, but I jumped in before he could object. The church at St. Monica, said I, and half a sovereign if you reach it in twenty minutes. It was twenty-five minutes to twelve, and of course it was clear enough what was in the wind. My cabby drove fast. I don't think I ever drove faster, but the others were there before us. The cab and the landau with their steaming horses were in front of the door when I arrived. I paid the man and hurried into the church. There was not a soul there save the two whom I had followed and a surpliced clergyman, who seemed to be expostulating with them. They were all three standing in a knot in front of the altar. I lounged up the side aisle like any other idler who has dropped into a church. Suddenly, to my surprise, the three at the altar faced round to me, and Godfrey Norton came running as hard as he could towards me. "'Thank goodness!' he cried. "'You'll do. Come, come.' "'What then?' I asked. "'Come, man, come. Only three minutes, or it won't be legal.' I was half-dragged up to the altar, and before I knew where I was I found myself mumbling responses which were whispered in my ear, and vouching for things of which I knew nothing, and generally assisting in the secure tying up of Irene Adler, spinster, to Godfrey Norton, bachelor. It was all done in an instant, and there was the gentleman thanking me on the one side and the lady on the other, while the clergyman beamed on me in front. It was the most preposterous position in which I ever found myself in my life, and it was the thought of it that started me laughing just now. It seems that there had been some informality about their license, that the clergyman absolutely refused to marry them without a witness of some sort, and that my lucky appearance saved the bridegroom from having to sally out into the streets in search of a best man. The bride gave me a sovereign and I mean to wear it on my watch-chain in memory of the occasion. This is a very unexpected turn of affairs, said I, and what then? Well, I found my plans very seriously menaced. It looked as if the pair might take an immediate departure, and so necessitate very prompt and energetic measures on my part. At the church door, however, they separated, he driving back to the temple and she to her own house. I shall drive out in the park at five as usual, she said, as she left him. I heard no more. They drove away in different directions, and I went off to make my own arrangements. Which are? Some cold beef and a glass of beer, he answered, ringing the bell. I have been too busy to think of food, and I am likely to be busier still this evening. By the way, doctor, I shall want your cooperation. I shall be delighted. You don't mind breaking the law? Not in the least. Nor running a chance of arrest? Not in a good cause. Oh, the cause is excellent. That I am your man. I was sure that I might rely on you. But what is it you wish? When Mrs. Turner has brought in the tray, I will make it clear to you. Now, he said, as he turned hungrily on the simple fare that our landlady had provided, I must discuss it while I eat for I have not much time. It is nearly five now. In two hours we must be on the scene of action. Miss Irene, or Madame, rather, returns from her drive at seven. We must be at Briony Lodge to meet her. And what then? You must leave that to me. I have already arranged what is to occur. There is only one point on which I must insist. 
You must not interfere, come what may. You understand? I am to be neutral? To do nothing whatever. There will probably be some small unpleasantness. Do not join in. It will end in my being conveyed into the house. Four or five minutes afterwards the sitting-room window will open. You are to station yourself close to that open window. Yes. You are to watch me, for I will be visible to you. Yes. And when I raise my hand, so, you will throw into the room what I give you to throw, and will at the same time raise the cry of fire. You quite follow me? Entirely. It is nothing very formidable, he said, taking a long cigar-shaped roll from his pocket. It is an ordinary plumber's smoke-rocket, fitted with a cap at either end to make itself lighting. Your task is confined to that. When you raise your cry of fire, it will be taken up by quite a number of people. You may then walk to the end of the street, and I will rejoin you in ten minutes. I hope that I have made myself clear. I am to remain neutral, to get near the window, to watch you, and at the signal to throw in this object, then to raise the cry of fire, and to wait you at the corner of the street, precisely. Then you may entirely rely on me. That is excellent. I think, perhaps, it is almost time that I prepare for the new role I have to play. He disappeared into his bedroom and returned in a few minutes in the character of an amiable and simple-minded nonconformist clergyman. His broad black hat, his baggy trousers, his white tie, his sympathetic smile, and general look of peering and benevolent curiosity were such as Mr. John Hare alone could have equaled. It was not merely that Holmes changed his costume. His expression, his manner, his very soul seemed to vary with every fresh part that he assumed. The stage lost a fine actor, even as science lost an acute reasoner, when he became a specialist in crime. It was a quarter past six when we left Baker Street, and it still wanted ten minutes to the hour when we found ourselves in Serpentine Avenue. It was already dusk and the lamps were just being lighted as we paced up and down in front of Briani Lodge, waiting for the coming of its occupant. The house was just such as I had pictured it from Sherlock Holmes' succinct description, but the locality appeared to be less private than I expected. On the contrary, for a small street in a quiet neighborhood it was remarkably animated. There was a group of shabbily dressed men smoking and laughing in a corner, a scissors-grinder with its wheel, two guardsmen who were flirting with a nurse-girl, and several well-dressed young men who were lounging up and down with cigars in their mouths. "'You see,' remarked Holmes, as we paced to and fro in front of the house, "'this marriage rather simplifies matters. The photograph becomes a double-edged weapon now. The chances are that she would be as averse to its being seen by Mr. Godfrey Norton as our client is to its coming to the eyes of his princess. Now the question is, where are we to find the photograph? Where, indeed? It is most unlikely that she carries it about with her. It is cabinet-sized, too large for her easy concealment about a woman's dress. She knows that the king is capable of having her waylaid and searched. Two attempts of the sort have already been made. 
We may take it, then, that she does not carry it about with her. Where, then? Her banker, or her lawyer. There is that double possibility. But I am inclined to think neither. Women are naturally secretive, and they like to do their own secreting. Why should she hand it over to anyone else? She could trust her own guardianship, but she could not tell what indirect or political influence might be brought to bear upon a businessman. Besides, remember that she had resolved to use it within a few days. It must be where she can lay her hands upon it. It must be in her own house. But it has twice been burgled. Pshaw! They did not know how to look. But how will you look? I will not look. What then? I will get her to show me. But she will refuse. She will not be able to. But I hear the rumble of wheels. It is her carriage. Now carry out my orders to the letter. As he spoke, the gleam of the side-lights of a carriage came round the curve of the avenue. It was a smart little landau which rattled up to the door of Briony Lodge. As it pulled up, one of the loafing men at the corner dashed forward to open the door in the hope of earning a copper, but was elbowed away by another loafer, who had rushed up with the same intention. A fierce quarrel broke out, which was increased by the two guardsmen, who took sides with one of the loungers, and by the scissors grinder, who was equally hot upon the other side. A blow was struck, and in an instant the lady who had stepped from her carriage was the centre of a little knot of flushed and struggling men, who struck savagely at each other with their fists and sticks. Holmes dashed into the crowd to protect the lady but just as he reached her he gave a cry and dropped to the ground with the blood running freely down his face at his fall the guardsmen took to their heels in one direction and the loungers in the other while a number of better dressed people who had watched the scuffle without taking part in it crowded in to help the lady and to attend to the injured man irene adler as i will still call her had hurried up the steps but she stood at the top with her superb figure outlined against the lights of the hall looking back into the street is the poor gentleman much hurt she asked he is dead cried several voices no no there's life in him shouted another but he'll be gone before we can get him to hospital he's a brave fellow said a woman they would have had the lady's purse and watch if it hadn't been for him they were a gang and a rough one too ah he's breathing now he can't lie in the street. May we bring him in, Marm? Surely bring him into the sitting-room. There is a comfortable sofa. This way, please. Slowly and solemnly he was borne into Briony Lodge, and laid out in the principal room, while I still observed the proceedings from my post by the window. The lamps had been lit, but the blinds had not been drawn, so that I could see Holmes as he lay upon the couch. I do not know whether he was seized with compunction at that moment for the part he was playing, but I know that I never felt more heartily ashamed of myself in my life than when I saw the beautiful creature against whom I was conspiring, or the grace and kindliness with which she waited upon the injured man. And yet it would be the blackest treachery to Holmes to draw back now from the part which he had entrusted to me. I hardened my heart and took the smoke-rocket from under my ulster. After all, I thought, we are not injuring her. We are but preventing her from injuring another. 
Holmes had sat up upon the couch, and I saw him motion like a man who is in need of air. A maid rushed across and threw open the window. At the same instant I saw him raise his hand, and at the signal I tossed my rocket into the room with a cry of fire. The word was no sooner out of my mouth than the whole crowd of spectators, well-dressed and ill, gentlemen, ostlers, and servant-maids, joined in a general shriek of fire. Thick clouds of smoke curled through the room and out at the open window. I caught a glimpse of rushing figures, and a moment later the voice of Holmes from within assuring them that it was a false alarm. Slipping through the shouting crowd, I made my way to the corner of the street, and in ten minutes was rejoiced to find my friend's arm in mine, and to get away from the scene of uproar. He walked swiftly and in silence for some few minutes until we had turned down one of the quiet streets which led towards the Edgware Road. "'You did it very nicely, doctor,' he remarked. "'Nothing could have been better. It is all right. You have the photograph?' "'I know where it is.' and how did you find out? She showed me as I told you she would. I am still in the dark. I do not wish to make a mystery, said he, laughing. The matter was perfectly simple. You, of course, saw that everyone in the street was an accomplice. They were all engaged for the evening. I guessed as much. Then, when the row broke out, I had a little moist red paint in the palm of my hand. I rushed forward, fell down, clapped my hand to my face, and became a piteous spectacle. It is an old trick. That also I could fathom. Then they carried me in. She was bound to have me in. What else could she do? And into her sitting-room, which was the very room which I suspected. It lay between that and her bedroom, and I was determined to see which. They laid me on a couch. I motioned for air. They were compelled to open the window, and you had your chance. How did that help you? It was all important. When a woman thinks that her house is on fire, her instinct is at once to rush to the thing which she values most. It is a perfectly overpowering impulse, and I have more than once taken advantage of it. In the case of the Darlington substitution scandal, it was of use to me, and also in the Arnsworth Castle business. A married woman grabs at her baby, an unmarried one reaches for her jewel-box. Now it was clear to me that our lady of to-day had nothing in the house more precious to her than what we are in quest of. She would rush to secure it. The alarm of fire was admirably done. The smoke and shouting were enough to shake nerves of steel. She responded beautifully. The photograph is in a recess behind a sliding panel just above the right bell-pull. She was there in an instant and I caught a glimpse of it as she half drew it out. When I cried out that it was a false alarm, she replaced it, glanced at the rocket, rushed from the room, and I have not seen her since. I rose, and, making my excuses, escaped from the house. I hesitated whether to attempt to secure the photograph at once, but the coachman had come in, and as he was watching me narrowly, it seemed safer to wait. A little over-precipitance may ruin all. And now, I asked, our quest is practically finished. I shall call with the king tomorrow, and with you, if you care to come with us. We will be shown into the sitting-room to wait for the lady, but it is probable that when she comes she may find neither us nor the photograph. It might be a satisfaction to his majesty to regain it with his own hand. And when would you call? At eight in the morning. She will not be up, so that we shall have a clear field. Besides, we must be prompt, 
for this marriage may mean a complete change in her life and habits. I must wire to the king without delay. We had reached Baker Street and had stopped at the door. He was searching his pockets for the key when someone passing said, Good night, Mr. Sherlock Holmes. There were several people on the pavement at the time, but the greeting appeared to come from a slim youth in an ulster who had hurried by. I've heard that voice before, said Holmes, staring down the dimly lit street. Now I wonder who the deuce that could have been. I slept at Baker Street that night, and we were engaged upon our toast and coffee in the morning when the King of Bohemia rushed into the room. "'You have really got it?' he cried, grasping Sherlock Holmes by either shoulder and looking eagerly into his face. "'Not yet.' "'But you have hopes?' "'I have hopes.' "'Then come. I am all impatience to be gone. We must have a cab.' "'No, my brougham is waiting.' "'Then that will simplify matters.' We descended and started off once more for Briony Lodge. "'Irene Adler is married,' remarked Holmes. "'Married? When?' "'Yesterday. But to whom?' "'To an English lawyer named Norton. But she could not love him. I am in hopes that she does.' "'And why in hopes?' "'Because it would spare your majesty all fear of future annoyance. If the lady loves her husband, she does not love your majesty.' If she does not love your majesty, there is no reason why she should interfere with your majesty's plan. It is true, and yet, uh, well, I wish she had been of my own station. What a queen she would have made. He relapsed into moody silence, which was not broken until we drew up in Serpentine Avenue. The door of Briony Lodge was open, and an elderly woman stood upon the steps. She watched us with a sardonic eye as we stepped from the Brougham. "'Mr. Sherlock Holmes, I believe,' said she. "'I am Holmes,' answered my companion, looking at her with a questioning and rather startled gaze. "'Indeed. My mistress told me that you were likely to call. She left this morning with her husband by the 5.15 train from Charing Cross for the continent.' "'What?' Sherlock Holmes staggered back, white with chagrin and surprise. "'Do you mean that she has left England?' "'Never to return.' "'And the papers?' asked the king hoarsely. "'All is lost. We shall see.' He pushed past the servant and rushed into the drawing-room, followed by the king and myself. The furniture was scattered about in every direction, with dismantled shelves and open drawers, as if the lady had hurriedly ransacked them before her flight. Holmes rushed at the bell-pull tore back a small sliding shutter, and plunging in his hand, pulled out a photograph and a letter. The photograph was of Irene Adler herself, in evening dress. The letter was superscribed to Sherlock Holmes, Esquire, to be left till called for. My friend tore it open, and we all three read it together. It was dated at midnight of the preceding night, and ran in this way. You really did it very well. You took me in completely until after the alarm of fire i had not a suspicion but then when i found how i had betrayed myself i began to think i had been warned against you months ago i had been told that if the king employed an agent it would certainly be you and your address had been given me yet with all this you made me reveal what you wanted to know even after i became suspicious i found it hard to think evil of such a dear kind old clergyman but you know, I have been trained as an actress myself. Male costume is nothing new to me. 
I often take advantage of the freedom which it gives. I sent John, the coachman, to watch you, ran upstairs, got into my walking clothes, as I call them, and came down just as you departed. Well, I followed you to your door, and so made sure that I was really an object of interest to the celebrated Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Then I, rather imprudently, wished you good-night, and started for the temple to see my husband. We both thought the best resource was flight, when pursued by so formidable an antagonist, so you will find the nest empty when you call to-morrow. As to the photograph, your client may rest in peace. I love and am loved by a better man than he. The king may do what he will without hindrance from one whom he has cruelly wronged. I keep it only to safeguard myself, and to preserve a weapon which will always secure me from any steps which he might take in the future. I leave a photograph which he might care to possess, and I remain, dear Mr. Sherlock Holmes, very truly yours, Irene Norton, nay, Adler. What a woman! Oh, what a woman! cried the King of Bohemia, when we had all three read this epistle. Did I not tell you how quick and resolute she was? Would she not have made an admirable queen? Is it not a pity that she was not on my level? From what I have seen of the lady, she seems indeed to be on a very different level to your majesty, said Holmes coldly. I am sorry that I have not been able to bring your majesty's business to a more successful conclusion. On the contrary, my dear sir, cried the king, nothing could be more successful. I know that her word is inviolate. The photograph is now as safe as if it were in the fire. I am glad to hear your majesty say so. I am immensely indebted to you. Pray tell me in what way I can reward you. This ring, he slipped an emerald snake ring from his finger and held it out upon the palm of his hand. Your majesty has something which I should value even more highly, said Holmes. You have but to name it this photograph. The king stared at him in amazement. Irene's photograph, he cried. Certainly, if you wish it. I thank your majesty. Then there is no more to be done in the matter. I have the honor to wish you a very good morning. He bowed, and turning away without observing the hand which the king had stretched out to him, he set off in my company for his chambers. And that was how a great scandal threatened to affect the kingdom of Bohemia, and how the best plans of Mr. Sherlock Holmes were beaten by a woman's wit. He used to make merry over the cleverness of women, but I have not heard him do it of late, and when he speaks of Irene Adler, or when he refers to her photograph, it is always under the honorable title of The Woman. End of A Scandal in Bohemia by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.